Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zacharin, the assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in Economics. Today, I'm speaking with Robert Hetzel, retired economist from the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. He is currently a visiting scholar of, of the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. Robert has written a sweeping work on the Fed titled The Federal Reserve, A New History, from Chicago Press. Robert has written an extremely rich and detailed book that showcases the triumphs and defeats of the Fed, in its century-long effort to stabilize the economy. Before beginning our conversation, I'd like to say a special thanks to Michaela Lucky of the Chicago Press. Robert, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Good. Um, I assume you want me to start by telling a little bit about myself? Yes, of course. Yeah, we would love to hear hear about your work uh, and your career. Okay. Um, I got my degrees at the University of Chicago, and uh, as an undergraduate, I was a historian. I went into economics, and my interest in monetary economics really took off in the early 1970s when I was a member of the Money and Banking Workshop at the University of Chicago. Of course, it was headed by Milton Friedman, and Milton Friedman was my thesis advisor. So um, obviously, he was one of the pivotal uh, figures in my life. Uh, In 1975, I joined the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond, as an economist, and I was involved in briefings and debriefings for FOMC meetings. Uh, Later on, um, I I started going to some FOMC meetings. Uh, When I arrived, uh, Arthur Burns was uh, still uh, chairman of the uh, Board of Governors and uh, FOMC, so that I've, I've been involved in monetary history in an academic sense, but also in a practical sense, and I feel like that's given me insights into um, the operation of the Fed that uh, perhaps I wouldn't have gotten as an academic. To discuss a little bit about the book, obviously you've been working uh, in at the Fed for, for such a long time, but you know so many works have been written about the history of the Federal Reserve, including works by Alan Blinder, Alan Meltzer. There's, there's many more new books coming out seemingly every single day. Uh, What would you say sets your work apart? I'm very serious about the issue of identification. Now, let me explain that uh, as briefly as I can. The behavior of the Fed affects the behavior of the economy, and the behavior of the economy affects the behavior of the Fed. So if you just go look at data series, like the relationship between the federal funds rate and series like inflation and real GDP growth, you don't know what causes what. And and to write a history that can evaluate the efficacy or inefficacy of monetary policy, whether it's stabilizing or destabilizing, you need to solve the identification problem. You need to have a history that allows you to understand how the Fed affects the economy. Uh, And and that requires a lot of... um, a lot of discipline. It's not obvious how to how to do. And 
I'm not going to criticize any other um, historians, but the, the Fed has a narrative which it pushes uh, to defend its independence, which is that it never makes mistakes. Um, bad things always come from above. They sort of land on the Fed and the Fed bites them off. Or to put it simply, the Fed's a uh, an inflation fighter. It's not an inflation creator. And that narrative gets propagated in the press. Of course, reporters report what the Fed chair says. And so I, I feel like a, a history with a, with a disciplined approach to identifying causation is, is, is very important. And that's the emphasis. Uh, that's what organizes my book. So let, let's start from, from the top, which is you know before the Fed was even created. So what was the U.S. monetary system and standard like before the creation of the Fed in 1914? Well, the, the Fed went into um, existence with the gold standard. Uh, and there was no central bank. The the uh, apart from some um, occasional uh, forays of the treasury during financial panics, uh, the system operated automatically, and um, the dollar was pegged to to gold. There was no central bank, and with the gold standard, um, the central bank its job is. If there is a central bank, like the Bank of England or the Reichsbank, uh, its job is to maintain the parity price of the currency with gold, and it responds to gold inflows and outflows. And the key thing about that is the Fed, the central bank, is not a creator of money. It's not in, in charge of creating reserves. The reserves are given to the central bank by inflows and outflows of due to the balance of payments. So the Fed was created without an adequate understanding of the role of a central bank, as we understand it today, a, a, a central bank that has responsibility to control prices and a responsibility to control money. So the, the Fed was really groping in the dark and it, it took a long time before the Fed uh, uh, sort, sort of put things together. Why was the Fed created in the first place and what were the immediate consequences of this creation? That's a very good question because um, we had two banks. They weren't modern central banks, but they were national uh, central banks. The first bank of the United States and the second bank of the United States. The, the, they were chartered for 20 years. Um, uh, President Andrew Jackson vetoed the recharter of the second bank of the United States. Uh, and, and in the populist environment, of the United States, um, the, the central bank, well, the the second, first, and central banks in the United States, they, they were viewed viewed as 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 exploiting. So there was this long uh, tradition against having a central bank. It was epitomized uh, later on by William Jennings uh, Bryan, uh, and and so, for example, the. In 1912, during the presidential election, the Democrats in their platform committed to not having a central bank. So it was really uh, an amazing thing that we got a central bank. And we, the reason we did was because President Wilson uh, thought of it as part of a progressive uh, program of, uh, of reform. And he was, he was able to push it through, but on the... Um, 
basis that it wouldn't be controlled from Washington, that it would be a federal uh, a, a federal system. You describe the dominance of something called the Real Bills Doctrine. What What is the Real Bills Doctrine, and why did it hold sway for economists at the Fed? Okay, that's a very good um, question. Now, again, with the gold standard, um, the 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 role of a, what we think of as a modern central bank uh, wasn't uh, wasn't understood. In fact, the gold standard had been such an orthodoxy that even talking about a central bank that controlled money creation was off 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 limits. You you were a heretic. The only experience with central banks that were that did not have a specie standard, gold or silver, uh, was. Uh, with central banks that monetized government deficits in wartime. So the idea of a central bank that was not disciplined by a species standard was um, was anathema. Uh, and, and, and so that um, that idea carried carried through. Now so what, what was what was the Fed supposed to do then if it wasn't in, in charge of controlling uh, prices, uh, you know, as we understand a modern central bank today. Well, the, the history of financial instability was associated with financial crises. And the prevailing view was that they were caused by excessive speculation. Uh, speculators would um, get uh, mania in their um Mines and they would drive asset prices up to an unsustainable level. Debt levels would rise, and then at some point, the whole house of cards would come crashing down. So the Fed uh, viewed its role as preventing the kind of speculation that would that would ultimately crash and cause a financial panic, and with it, depression and uh, de deflation. Um, now, the real bills doctrine then was based on that. Um, the idea was that if, if the central bank uh, discounted real bills, and a real bill is uh, evidence of debt uh, or goods in production, uh, so the idea is that it corresponds to something real, not, not something speculative, something you know, e e e made up. Um, and so the idea was that if, if, if the Fed only discounted these real bills, so for example, the, the credit that arose in bringing crops to market in the fall, um, or you know, or, or good to market, then credit would only be extended on productive for productive purposes. It wouldn't be extended for speculative purposes. If it was extended for speculative purposes, ultimately there'd be a, a crash and you get a financial panic, deflation and, and, and recession. So, so the, the, the Fed was understood as controlling, as allocating credit uh, and making sure it only went to productive uses. That, that's the, that was the real bill stock. Just to sort of, I guess, get a picture of what the economy looked like at this time. Like my assumption is that it would have been very much dominated by agriculture. Uh, what did what did it sort of the what was the economy built of built around at this point in time? Well, um, in nineteen uh, thirteen uh, and fourteen, when the Fed was created, uh, it's true that we were 
primarily an agricultural economy, and that's um, that's important for for our purposes because that uh, was sort of the bedrock for the populist uh, views of the time. Uh, the idea that if banking were concentrated in a central bank, it would be controlled by Wall Street, and it would be it would be uh, exploitive. However, uh, the the United States was in the process of becoming the world's dominant uh, economic power, uh, and in the 1920s, um, there was an enormous amount of uh, in, in innovation, and uh, you know we'll get into we'll get into this later. But, but the size of the U.S. economy um, uh, was important in that uh, when, when, when we initiated a contractionary monetary policy, you know, we, we weren't just some little country. Uh, you know, we, we were able to bring down the world economy. I think we'll get to that later. I, I'm sure, you know, many people are, are uh, familiar with with the 20s and it being this period of speculation and growth and, you know, massive shifts in culture, and then obviously the resulting Great Depression. Uh, and chapter seven gives an account of this. Uh, can you describe what the, the 20s and then the subsequent response to the Great Depression was like from the perspective of the Federal Reserve? Okay. Um, of course, we could talk about this for hour. <laughs> Let me try to um, cut to the chase. So even though the Fed was created, um, uh, it started getting into operation in 1913, you know, the war broke out in 1914. And basically, uh, uh, monetary policy was run by the Treasury. And even after the war ended in um, uh, fall 20, uh, 1917, the Fed really wasn't independent until fall of 1919, because the Treasury wanted to um, issue victory bonds, which were long-term bonds to replace short-term debt. And, and, and so the, the Fed wasn't given power over its main instrument, the discount rate, until the fall of 1919. Now, at that point, um, when the Fed gained its independence, there was a significant amount of inflation. And today we would say, well, that was because in the World War One, the Fed monetized a lot of government debt, but in the real bills environment of the time, the, the inflation was viewed as uh, due to speculation, speculative excess. So when, when the Fed gained its independence, uh, it started raising interest rates. It started raising the discount rate and it raised it very dramatically. And uh, it, it viewed this speculation as coming from, and we'll get back to this later in the depression, as coming from an excessive extension of credit. So it wanted the banking system to, to uh, contract. So we'll get back to a credit base that was just enough to support a productive economic activity. Uh, so between telling banks that they had to cut back on their loans and raising the, the discount rate, it set off a, um, a very deep recession, uh, uh, and, and prices fell. Uh, now, the Fed interpreted that in its real bills framework. That is, the Fed had the country had a recession and deflation because of the collapse of the speculation in commodity markets. The Fed almost lost its independence at that point because the populist 
senators from, from the West, they were concerned about the dramatic fall in commodity prices, the fall in the price of cotton, wheat, and so on. Uh, so the Fed said to itself, oh my goodness, uh, we better not have another one of these um, uh, recessions like this. And the moral it drew from that was that it would have to nip incipient speculation in the bud before it got to the point where it would collapse. Now, if we're going to talk about the 20s, uh, we have to talk about, well, you know, what was it What was it that took so long for the Fed to bring the economy down? But, we, you know, we can we can get to that next. Yeah, let, I think that would be really valuable for listeners to hear about what, what happened, uh, the speculative excess and then the subsequent depression. Okay. Um, so I think this is where... Um, you know, my, my book really gets going in terms of the Fed. And uh, I think I have a perspective that's not available in other books. And so the Fed wasn't organized around keeping the economy growing. It was organized around preventing speculation. Uh, but initially, um, events kept the Fed from uh, trying to crush asset speculation, uh, and effectively implement a, a deflationary monetary policy. There were two things. One was that there was a huge inflow of gold uh, starting in 1921, uh, and that kept, um, the, the Fed was mainly concerned with all, offsetting that. And then later on, um, especially in 1926, the Fed was very concerned about getting Europe back on the gold standard. And so the Fed didn't want interest rates to be too high here so that gold flowed into the United States and it was hard for the um, newly established or independent central banks, the, the uh, Banque de France, the Reichsbank, um, the uh, Bank of England to, to have enough gold reserves to start the gold standard. But as the, um, when, it, when uh, Europe and Japan got back on the gold standard, um, the Fed felt like it had more, more freedom to concentrate on what it saw as its essential um, responsibility, that is the prevention of excessive speculation. And the economy in the 20s really roared away, you know, the, ro the, the roaring uh, 20s. And a, a lot of financial innovation occurred, uh, like the issue, uh, corporate issuance of securities to finance themselves. Um, uh, and, and so the, the people were optimistic about the future and the stock market took off. But the Fed viewed that rise in the stock market as speculative excess. And again, to repeat, the Fed was concerned that, if, that excessive speculation would eventually collapse. And so the way to prevent a severe uh, deflation recession was to nip that speculation in, in the bud. The question then became how to do it. And there were two views. There was the board, there was the, what was then called the Federal Reserve Board. And then there was the New York Fed and they competed for for, for control. The view of the, of the Federal Reserve Board was very traditional real bills. That is, um, uh, you, you had to make sure that the banks were only lending for productive purposes. 
the view of the New York Fed was also real bills, but it, but um, uh, its head, uh, strong, uh, viewed credit as fungible. So to deal with speculative excess, you couldn't just sort of direct how credit was going. If there was speculative excess, it meant that there was too much credit being extended. It was spilling over from productive purposes into um, unproductive uh, speculative uh, purposes. So um, the credit uh, base had to shrink. Okay, so you put these two together, it's a double, it's a double whammy. Um, the banks are told, uh, man, you guys gotta, you guys gotta stop uh, this excessive credit expansion. And so um, banks had two ways of, uh, of adjusting to reserve outflows. Um, you know, a, a bank um, has a, a base of, has a superstructure of deposits or reserves, but there's reserve flows, inflows, and outflows, and, and individual banks have to adjust to that, and they adjust to that today in the federal funds, uh, federal funds market, okay? In that time, um, funds went from uh, interior banks to um, banks in New York to uh, lend on, on the call loan money, the stock on the stock market, okay? And they also borrowed from the um, from, from their regional Federal Reserve banks. So what the Fed did when it told banks, you got to stop the successive lending, two things happened. Um, banks were told that they couldn't use that call loan money uh, that funnel money to the, on, on margin to the uh, stock market because that was viewed as encouraging speculation. And okay, so what about um, dealing with a reserve outflow through borrowing from the discount window? Well, um, it, the, under real bills, the, the view was that, well, if you borrowed for an extended period of time, it had to be because you were financing something speculative, not a goods in the process of production. And so if you were borrowing um, from the Fed, that would invite um, the banks, Fed supervisors to come in and look at your portfolio. And if you've been lending on security collateral, which we talked about before, the corporations issuing securities rather than on real bills, you'd you, you'd be in uh, you'd be in trouble with the Fed. So 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 the banks um, could no longer adjust reserves to the call loan money market. They couldn't do it um, without penalty through the discount window. So what were they going to do? Well, they needed to build up excess reserves to deal with reserves outflows. Uh, but in the environment of the time where the Fed was not allowing credit to expand, the only way they could do that is to contract. And so um, what Freeman and Schwartz called the Great Contraction, which lasted from um, fall of 1929 until uh, March of 1933, um, that whole period was characterized by a period in which banks were trying to build up excess reserves um, by contracting their uh, portfolios, but that didn't that didn't create reserves. It, it it just made bank asset portfolios smaller to a given reserve reserve base. 
Um, and so in that process of contraction, money, the money stock got uh, contracted by, and this is Friedman and Schwartz, by, uh, by, by a third. And that set off a huge deflation and recession. Problem uh, with this period, as opposed to the earlier recession we talked about, the 1920-21 recession, is that in the earlier period, uh, as a consequence of World War One, the other central banks in the world had gone off the gold standard. And so you had floating exchange rates um, and contractionary monetary policy didn't spread from the United States to other countries. But when the gold standard um, was in place uh, during the great contraction, interest rates went up here, gold flowed in uh, from the rest of the world, uh, Europe especially, into the United States. And with the fragile um, uh, uh, gold exchange standard that had been reconstructed in the 1920s, uh, that caused a, a huge uh, 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 contraction in the banking systems of these other uh, of these other countries. So we exported our contractionary monetary policy and deflation to these other countries. And this gets us sort of far afield, but it was an absolutely incredible disaster. The Weimar Republic in particular um, was a democratic republic. It was committed to paying the reparations imposed on it by World War I. Um, but um, the unemployment rate surged uh, to 25%. And, and, and the discontent that caused uh, brought Hitler into, the, in, 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 into their government. And you know the rest of, uh, of, of, of the story. So um, this, this, um, uh, the first half of the 20th century, uh, the Western world did everything wrong. Uh, uh, it was just actually sort of amazing that we were able to pull back in the second half of the 20th century, but that gets us ahead of the story. Yeah, I, I mean, so, you know, going, you know, picking up sort of at 1933, uh, you know, Roosevelt, FDR, I don't know exactly when FDR is elected, if it's 32 or 34, I think it's 32. Uh, but, you know, once FDR is in office, how does does policy change? Uh, and I was wondering also if you could just maybe discuss a little bit about John Maynard Keynes and his views uh, on okay. so, so 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 Keynes um, at this point is not a Keynesian and the general theory is not published until 1936. So that's not really a, that's not really a, a consideration. The question is um, what happens uh, in going from Roosevelt to Hoover. Now again, the, um, the the orthodoxy uh was was the gold standard. The, the feeling was that money had value, uh, a dollar bill, which was just a piece of paper, had value because it could, could be converted into something with intrinsic value, that is, that is gold. And so um uh the the part of the orthodoxy and feeling at the time was that if 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 confidence was going to recover, which was a prerequisite for the economy recovering, um, you, you had to have a balanced budget and you, you had to stay on, on the gold standard. And that persisted through uh, Hoover. But you, you come into uh, March of 33 when Roosevelt takes office. Uh, England has been forced off the gold standard uh, in uh, fall of 31. Uh, uh, Germany is is it goes off some a, a little bit later, 
those economies start recovering. And um, by early 33, um, the deflation that's occurring is associated with, um, with recession. Now, um, Roosevelt and his brain trust doesn't have this monetary understanding of, of the world, unfortunately. But um, Roosevelt, to keep his political coalition, has to keep uh, the Western um, uh, representatives and senators on board. He's got to do something about declining uh, commodity prices, uh, cotton and wheat again. Um, so uh, the Roosevelt people get this idea that you need to raise, raise prices, but they're not thinking in terms of the price level. They're thinking in terms of individual prices, but they know that they know in order to do that, they've got to go off the uh, gold standard because the gold standard imposes a system. When the prices rise here relative to the rest of the world, gold flows out. The, the banking system has to contract, okay? So Roosevelt takes the country off the gold standard. And as I said, at this point, um, deflation, the gold standard, and recession are all becoming connected in the, in the mind of the public. So when it, it's a very positive uh, uh, thing when, when um, Roosevelt goes off the gold standard. And at this point, um, uh, banks have built up enough excess reserves that they no longer have to go to the discount window and, and, and they're no longer under this contractionary uh, pressure imposed uh, by the feds. So initially, the, uh, the economy just soars. It takes, it, it, it takes off. However, the Fed doesn't support that with, with money creation. The Fed is still very, uh, very conservative. And so do you want to take it from there or... Um, yeah, I, I, maybe you could talk about what what that was like, uh, that shift um, oh. away from the stand, gold standard. And, you know, when you say that the Fed created this not through, because there was a, a recession again in, in 37 and 30 or 38. Uh, so I'm, I'm wondering, you know, what what led to that? OK, so so let's work up. Let's work up to that. Um, so. Um, again, kind of Roosevelt has this, this problem. He needs to get commodity prices up. Um, and uh, he also wants to raise other prices because the feeling is, well, if you have deflation, prices are falling, uh, that's causing recession. But they don't, they don't think of it in terms of expanding the money supply. So, so that's, a, that's a problem for him. Uh, we'll come back to that. Um, but uh, he's also got a problem with the conservative Eastern establishment, the businessmen who were who were wedded to the gold standard and, and to a balanced balanced budget. Um, and at the same time, uh, Roosevelt has these advisors, advisors, Warren Pearson, who associate depreciation of the dollar with the rise of the price level in the United States. So when we go off the gold standard in March of 33, initially the dollar depreciates relative to other currencies. And that's good for agricultural exports. So Roosevelt's happy. But by the end of the year, that's no longer, that's no longer work, working. So Roosevelt solves this political economic problem by saying, okay, we'll go, we'll go back under the gold standard. You Eastern establishment guys can be happy, but we're going to do it at, a, at an depreciated rate at a rate that um, uh, uh, raises the dollar price of gold. 
uh, which will make our exports more competitive. And that satisfies the, um, the uh, farmers. Okay, so, so the Fed does that and two things happen. So um, our exports increase and uh, gold, gold flows into the United States and that's expansionary. So um, the money stock, bank credit, they all expand, uh, nominal expenditure, uh, prices uh, rise as you would expect from the, the quantity theory explanation. But, and here's the, here's a huge, uh, huge, huge mistake um, that Roosevelt made. Uh, so as we talked about earlier, when the U.S. goes off the gold standard, there's this um, great surge of optimism uh, and uh, production increases, prices increase, but wages are staying stagnant, prices are increasing, real wages are falling. Uh, Roosevelt feels like he has to do, do something for um, uh, uh, working people, okay? So you, you, you get these... Um, this national um you get the nra national recovery act which allows corporations to cartelize set prices jointly as long as they raise the prices of uh wages of labor so what happens is there's this huge inflation shock even though um dollar spending is increasing because money is increasing uh, a large proportion of that uh, uh, comes out as prices because you've got you've got this inflation shock okay and that um, uh, that works its way out the economy recovers but then you get the Wagner Act which um, uh, reinforces the uh, ability of labor to organize then you get another um, inflation shock and 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 the Fed's seen all this, and, and the Fed is seeing prices rise, and um, the Fed becomes, oh no, uh, goes into panic mode again, that um, 1928 and 1929 are gonna repeat themselves, prices are going up, uh, public's feeling uh, optimistic because the economy is recovering, although it doesn't jump back to potential because of these inflation shocks, but it's still recovering. And so the Fed says, um, gee, um, you know, all this gold that's flowed in, the banks are um, sitting on that as excess reserves. Now, the banks want those excess reserves because they were so badly burned uh, earlier in the decade. Uh, but the Fed doesn't see it that way. And so the Fed says to itself, ah, oh, we got to do something with these excess reserves. We got to sterilize them before they, they, they spill over into speculative excess. So in um, 36 and early 37, the, 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 the Fed raises um, reserve requirements, requirements very significantly. It turns out that the banks wanted those excess reserves. With the increase in reserve requirements, they disappeared. So the banks um, try to build up their excess reserves by selling, uh, selling securities, contracting loans, and you get a second monetary contraction, and, and the, um, the uh, country goes into uh, recession again. Once that recession uh, ended, it, did it did it technically did it technically end not until necessarily like towards the end of World War II? What was that sort of period like from this recession through World War II? 
Well, um, I mean, two things were happening. One is that uh, as gold flowed in, um, uh, part of it was being sterilized by the by the um, treasury. That it wasn't that it it was um, uh, financing its purchases of gold by issuing debt rather than just selling it to the Fed and creating money. Uh, and, and the Fed, um, you know, was really burned by the by the recession. So. So you started going back to the earlier situation where the gold inflows, which were still coming in, in part because of the instability caused by Hitler and Mussolini in, in Europe. So, so money, money starts expanding again, the economy starts recovering, but then you get Pearl Harbor. And when you get Pearl Harbor, um, the um, uh, Treasury, uh, the Fed goes along with the Treasury and you get, the, you get an interest rate peg and, and a lot of deficit uh, spending that's financed by the Fed. Uh, uh, so um, uh, you get you, 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 you get inflation, and, but it's a, it's it's like World War One. You come out of the um, uh, inflation, the World War Two inflation. But there are two things going on now. One is you still got real bills, and, and people are thinking, "Oh my God, you know, you you had all this huge." expansion of credit based on uh, government spending, there's going to be a collapse. And, and we're going to go back into deflation and, and recession. And the Keynesians are saying, well, you know, government spending, which was, you know, 30% of GDP, all that, that just disappears uh, as, as, as the defense spending disappears. So the Keynesians are saying, saying, oh, there's going to be a recession depression because uh, deficit spending has has collapsed. We've got, we've gone to a surplus. So so there's a universal assumption that we're going to repeat what happened after World War One, uh, where the country goes into a deep recession and deflation. And in that environment, uh, the Treasury is unwilling to let go of of control of monetary policy and, and its interest rate peg. And, and so uh, rates stay rates stay pegged until um, the Korean War uh, uh, comes in uh, June of 1951, and then there's a there's a um, we, if you like we can talk about that. There's a, a there's a huge battle that leads to the Treasury Fed Accord of March 1951. Yeah, that, that's uh, actually my next question is if you can talk a little bit about the relationship between the Treasury and the Fed and what changed in 1951. The Korean War starts in June of 1950. The, the accord is in uh, March of 1951. Initially, it's you know it's a police action. Um, uh, the the, the um, seems to be manageable, but in um, November of 1950, the Chinese cross uh, Yalu River. Uh, they they cross into North Korea to um, Push back the um, UN uh, forces that had been pushing the North Koreans uh, up the uh, up, up the peninsula. Okay, so at that point, it looks like there's going to be World War III, and uh, there's going to be a, a great demand for um, commodities, and there's also going to be price controls. So the, the, there's a huge commodity inflation as everybody tries to jump into commodities before the uh, the war starts and before uh, the controls go on. So there's a big inflation. Now, 
Now, now the Fed people are pretty conservative, um, and two things are going on. One is that um, the Fed people at this time are, are free market people. They do not want the reimposition of controls and uh, rationing that occurred in World War II. So they don't want the uh, inflation of you know, they don't want inf the inflation of World War II. And the second thing is, real bills collapses um, because this this um, recession that was supposed to come after World War II because of the this superstructure of credit built on uh, government securities rather than real bills. Well, the predicted uh, deflation uh, and recession doesn't doesn't come. So 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 this whole superstructure of real bills, uh, the real bills doctrine has disappeared. The monetary policy has to uh, reinvent its uh, reinvent itself. But of course, it can't do that as long as there's an interest rate peg with. Um, uh, that keeps the Fed from raising raising interest rates, but but the Fed wants to break loose from the Treasury. Uh, again, it doesn't want to repeat the World War II experience, and um, sort of <laughs> however you want to view it uh, as good or bad for the country. But um, uh, at this point, uh, Truman falls out with MacArthur, and MacArthur is very popular in, in Congress. You know, Truman, uh, MacArthur wants to expand the Korean War with China, and Truman doesn't want to, doesn't want to do that. Uh, MacArthur's using the, willing to use the, the bomb, that kind of thing. Um, so um, uh, Truman and Congress are loggerheads. And so in that, in that environment, the, the Fed can say to the Treasury, hey, you know, go jump in the lake. We're not going to buy your uh, uh your treasury securities anymore and and uh you know monetize all this uh debt securities that are flowing flowing in uh, and if you don't like it you can go to congress and change the federal reserve act well congress which is on the outs with truman is is you know is, is not gonna um it, 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 it's not gonna back truman uh over the fed so the Treasury realizes it's got to um, somehow accommodate uh, 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 this situation. Uh, so um, the compromise that's reached is that the current head of the Fed, uh, McCabe, he'll resign and be replaced by a Treasury guy, William McChesney Martin, who negotiated this, this, this Treasury Fed Accord, which would end the peg uh, on interest rates. The, the assumption of, of the Truman administration is that Martin's their guy. We'll go back to status quo ante because he's our guy. In fact, uh, after the war, um, uh, just by accident, Truman runs into Martin on uh, on on, a, on Fifth Avenue in New York, and, and Truman looks at Martin and says, traitor, and walks away. Because when Martin gets to the Fed, he... Uh, believes in Fed independence. And uh, so he stiffs the Treasury and the Truman administration and uh, uh, works to create an, an, an independent Fed, the kind of what we think of as a modern, a modern central bank. So can you talk about William McChesney Martin, you know, yeah. maybe paint a little picture of, of who he was as a person and the maybe uh, changes that he implemented at the Fed? Sure. Um, 
Martin um, had been a bond trader, and actually his father was a governor. They were called governors then of, of the um, Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. He had been the youngest um, head of the New York Stock Exchange ever appointed. Um, there was a in, in the 30s, there was a scandal. There was a lot of congressional concern about double dealing uh, uh, in um, uh, on Wall Street, people uh, lending themselves money, that kind of thing. And so Martin was brought in to um, head the, uh, Wall, the New York Stock Exchange and clean it up. He was a young guy. And, and the old guys thought, oh, we can control this guy. Well, turns out they couldn't. Uh, you know, he was he was a real uh, he was a real reformer. And uh, in the war, World War II, um, he uh, he volunteered just as a soldier. But obviously, he was not an he was not an average your average private. So he, the Treasury took him and made him head of lend lease. Uh, and in that position, he really developed a sense of, of um, that, that the American economy was uh, worked really well as a free market economy. So he was he was very much intellectually um, on the opposite side of the Keynesians, who believed that the economy could only be kept going by deficit uh, deficit spending. So so Martin had Martin had to create a monetary policy to replace real bills. Uh, you know, completely reinvent monetary policy. He had to do it in a way that would um, uh, keep the Fed independent of uh, 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 of the Treasury, and he had to challenge the. Uh, he had to deal with the change in the um, in, in the intellectual environment, which made um, policy making environment, which made um, uh, government responsible for. For full employment. So um, uh, Martin wasn't in an intellectual, but he brought um, McCabe, and, uh, the earlier Fed chair, uh, chair of the Board of Governors, had brought a guy in uh, from the Philadelphia Fed named Winfield Riefler, who had been at the board in the 1920s. And so Riefler was the brains, the intellect. Uh, uh, Martin was, was was just a good uh, a, a good politician and you know who had real strong beliefs. So um, uh, Martin didn't want to repeat the World War II experience of uh, uh, price controls and credit allocation. So he knew that the Fed had to accept responsibility for price stability, and that was a huge change from real bills. Uh, the Fed had responsibility for uh, uh, price stability, and he had to do it in a way that was um, compatible with the new Keynesian environment. And so um, the way he and Riefler put it together was that um, the economy couldn't grow in an unsustainable way. It couldn't always grow faster than potential because Markets, labor markets would overheat. There'd be excessive credit expansion, and that would bring back inflation. So he developed "lean against the wind," Ian Riefler, which is essentially uh, the idea that if the economy is growing at an unsustainable rate, so the rates of resource utilization are declining, the unemployment rate is declining in a persistent way. 
then interest rates have got to rise and, and vice versa uh, with with weakness. So um, of course, said Martin wasn't in, was an intellectual and in the Keynesian environment at the time, there really wasn't an intellectual framework to understand what the Fed was doing. But essentially, um, by um, causing rates of resource utilization not to increase or decrease persistently, but to stabilize, um, the Fed was adjusting the interest rate um, uh, to a level that would maintain output growing at potential. Effectively, it was letting the price system work, although economists at this time didn't have a have a model of the price system and you know would exhibit its stabilizing properties. But but Martin moved in, but 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 Martin and Riefler um got moved in that way with this lean against the wind uh policy. And how are they determining uh what the sort of optimal growth level was? Was it through inflation, uh measuring inflation, or were there other methods that they employed? Well, okay, two things. One, um, like we said, um if, if the rate of resource utilization, the unemployment rate was stable, you knew the economy wasn't growing too fast or too slowly. You knew it was growing at potential. And the second thing is um, Martin and Riefler did something um, revolutionary. Instead of looking at asset prices and looking for uh, excessive speculation, they began to look at the bond market at bond rates. The idea that if as long as uh, financial markets believed that you would move interest rates persistently to whatever degree was required to control uh, excessive credit uh, extension and money and inflation, then then there'd be no uh, inflation premia in, in in bond rates. But to do that, um, and also to protect himself from pressure from the treasury to, to uh, be the lender of last resort if a, uh, a bond issue didn't, didn't sell. Um, Martin developed something called bills only in which uh, the Fed would only transact in treasury bills. Bond rates would be free to move. So you get lean against the wind where the Fed's moving interest rates in an intuitive way to offset excessive weakness or strength in the economy. And, you know, the, the um, price level um, uh, stability is, is ensured because um, the, the Fed is disciplined by the bond markets, uh, by not um, uh, what we would later call bond market vigilantes, uh, think that policy was excessively expansionary. Yeah. So how did how did how did the Fed lose? I mean, if the Martin was really dedicated to price stability, um, right? Yeah. For reasons we've talked about, and he had procedures that would that would guarantee it. Uh, so what happened? Well, um, you come into the '60s. Kennedy wants he campaigns on the goal of getting the country moving again, uh, get the country growing. Uh, we're competing with Russia. We're concerned that it's growing faster than we are. We want the economy to grow. Now, initially, um, uh, Martin's okay because there's a conservative treasury and Kennedy and Dillon treasury and are concerned uh, that um, they don't want a dollar crisis. Uh, they don't want the Bretton Woods to um, 
uh, implode because people lose confidence in the dollar. Uh, and Kennedy doesn't want another crisis on top of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So things are okay. But then Kennedy's assassinated and Johnson comes in. Johnson's a Texas populist. He believes in low interest rates. You know, it comes out of this, what we talked about, the William Jennings Bryan uh, tradition. And um, two, two additional things happen. One is that um, you get the war in Vietnam uh, and Johnson's unwilling to uh, choose between guns and butter. Uh, he, he wants the economy to grow. And with the war and the riots in the cities uh, uh, after the assassinations of King and Kennedy, or King especially, um, uh, the country's fractured over uh, the stresses caused by a militant uh, civil rights movement and by the war, the new generation burning, uh, burning the American flag and demonstration. So there's a political consensus that, that the country needs um, uh, low unemployment, 4% unemployment, which is kind of taken as a national um, goal. That turns out to be uh, unrealistically low, 6% uh, was the sustainable uh, value. So, so um, Martin at first kind of loses it. Uh, he sees the inflation. He wants a, uh, a tax increase. Johnson says, uh, he, he, he's lobbying Johnson and Martin makes a big mistake. He says, okay, we'll hold off on interest rate increases if you'll go to Congress for a tax increase. Uh, Johnson at first hesitates, but then he says, okay, but the negotiations between uh, uh, Wilbur Mills and Johnson go on and on. You finally get the tax increase. But by that point, um, uh, monetary policy is expansionary. Money's going too fast. Martin realizes he's really made a mis huge mistake. He, he puts the country through a recession to try to go back to price stability. But his term as governor uh, runs out, and Nixon appoints uh, Arthur Burns. So that's the next uh, part. Do you want to move on to that? Or? Yeah, uh, yeah. Let's let's talk about Arthur Burns and what his uh, his tenure was like, uh, and some of the, the challenges that he faced. So um, <laughs> uh, this is going to sound familiar. Um, so Nixon has a CEA head, Council of Economic Advisors head. Paul McCracken, who sells him on the idea of a soft landing. Um, uh, Nixon is not going to accept a recession. That's why he thinks he lost the, the, the presidential election because of the 1960 recession. So, and, uh, But they've got to deal with this inflation uh, that's, that's emerged by the end of the 60s. So McCracken um, uh, devises the... the, the the, the Fed's going to raise um, the unemployment rate to just above the full employment level, and it's, and then over time, inflation will work its way down. So in 1970, however, you're get, instead of this soft landing working, you're getting 5% inflation and 5, uh, 6% inflation and 6% unemployment. And Burns looks at that and he says, oh my gosh, we've got um, uh, slack in the economy and we still got inflation. And so 
Burns and the Keynesians and basically everyone except Milton Friedman buys into the idea that with slack in the economy and inflation, you've got cost, cost push pressures. It's cost push, it's labor union militancy and large corporations that are pushing uh, prices up. And so uh, that's, that, that's what gives you the price controls. But Burns think, well, if you've got the price controls, you know, why not have a monetary policy that will push the unemployment rate down? And so that starts with what Friedman, uh, what was later called Go Stop uh, Monetary Policy. Now, there's an interruption to this um, in the uh, Ford administration, uh, and this will sound familiar. The head of the CEA is now um, no, no, um, uh, uh, no, no other than our uh, own Alan Greenspan. Okay, now they're very conservative. But when, when um, Jimmy Carter comes in, uh, his guys think, hey, we're going to do just what Kennedy did. We're going to get the economy going again. Well, the problem was the economy didn't have the kind of slack it had in the early 60s. Uh, and uh, Burns, who's always kind of wanting to play the political game and be in the, in the midst of the politics, kind of puts off raising interest rates because he thinks he can get, get, get the incomes policies and the wage and price controls the, that he got under uh, under Nixon. So so you get another, um, you, you go from go to stop to go, uh, and then um, uh, you get G. William Miller to replace Burns. Uh, Miller's really out of his element. Uh, initially, he, um, in fall of 78, he pursues a contractionary monetary policy. Um, the world's concerned about the depreciation of the dollar. Um, uh, but then, um, you, the, in, in, in the fall of 1970 or December of uh, 79, sorry, December of 78, the uh, Soviets invade Afghanistan. There's a concern the budget will become unbalanced. Um, uh, and so Miller becomes un unwilling, Miller becomes unwilling to raise interest rates. He's concerned about another recession, but but the inflation is moving up. And so um, in terms of bond prices and expectations of inflation, everything becomes unmoored. Uh, and it's that environment that, that brings uh, Volcker in in um, August of 1979. Yeah, so, so Paul Volcker, you know, before, prior to reading this book, my uh, understanding is that Paul Volcker, if there's anyone who represents the the Fed chair as as like a as a role that he's like the Paul Volcker is is maybe the most consequential Fed chair. So uh, can you tell the listeners a little bit about Paul Volcker, uh, you know, who he was as a person, his values, uh, and the actions that he took to combat inflation? Sure. So um Volcker was always involved in uh, financial markets. Um, uh, he was his first job was at the New York Fed, uh, and so and that was in the late '40s. So he was, you know, very conservative. He went from there to um, uh, the Treasury. I guess he was at Chase Manhattan Bank for a while too. Um, but he, at Treasury, he was in charge of maintaining the Bretton Woods standard, which meant not going off 
for the dollar not to go off gold. So he very, very much believed in stability of, uh, uh, of the dollar uh, and maintaining the Bretton Woods system. He was the Mandarin of the system. And in the environment of the time, in the Cold War environment, he viewed a strong dollar as a sign of a strong United States in the, in the Cold, uh, Cold War. Um, so he, he's, a, he's appointed um, head of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, um, I think probably about 1976. Um, and then uh, toward the end of the Carter administration, uh, when it becomes obvious that uh, inflation rather than low unemployment is the problem. Um, Miller leaves, goes to Treasury, and Carter brings uh, Volcker in because he wants somebody who will be strong um, on, on, on inflation. Now, Volcker can't do anything about the dollar, um, uh, but um, he can um, try to restore price stability which is a prerequisite for a strong uh, dollar. Now, um, uh, you can read about this in the book, but uh, Volcker basically loses a year. Uh, he worked with the Carter people to um, implement a conservative balanced budget. Um, and he feels like he owes the Carter people something. So when the Carter people come up with this idea of credit controls, to uh, bring inflation down without a recession, um, uh, Volcker feels like he has to support it. And it turns out it was just a disaster. When Carter goes on TV and, and tells people we're gonna control credit, people tear up their credit cards. They think it's unpatriotic to spend on, on, on credit. And, the, and, and all the purchases that were based on uh, credit, uh, installment credit or whatever, uh, they collapse, the economy collapses, and then uh, the Fed is slow realizing that, that it's gonna jump back up. It's sort of like the current period with the pandemic where you get this brief collapse and then it shoots up again. Um, so but by, um, uh, that's all in 1980, but by the end of the 80s and early 80, 81, Volcker's chagrined. He, he was gonna come in and end this ghost this stop-go monetary policy, and yet he set off the whole cycle again. So in 81, he said, this is not gonna, you know, we're not gonna repeat this, and uh, monetary policy becomes very, uh, very tight. The funds rate goes up to 21%, uh, and we go through a severe recession. Now, Volcker will eventually back off in, um, starting in June of 82, because uh, the, there's a less developed country in LDC debt crisis. And um, it looks like um, all the borrowing that um, countries like Argentina and Brazil uh, did to finance um, the deficits that were created by the increase in oil prices, uh, which, which increased after uh, December of 78. Um, uh, they, they did all that borrowing from the big banks in, in New York. And, and starting with Mexico, they said, we can't, we're not going to repay this. We can't repay it. Well, Volcker's afraid the banking system's going to collapse. Um, and so he works with the IMF to, um, uh, to uh, lend to the countries to repay their 
uh, their bank lending and um, institute internal reform. But but at that point, then he can't bring um, he he doesn't want to uh, pursue a contractionary monetary policy. So inflation comes down from ten uh, percent to four percent, or it stabilizes, and then the politics are complicated. But um, uh, basically, that's where Greenspan comes in uh, uh, later on. Greenspan comes in in August of nineteen eighty seven. What was the perception, uh, public perception of, of Volcker at this time? You know, my sense is that now people reflect on Volcker as being this, you know, uh, sort of a patriotic figure, uh, you know, who did what, who made, who made the tough decisions. Uh, you know, was he, was he viewed the way that he maybe is today then? Yeah, um, at the time, uh, that was a very good uh, question. Um, there was a lot, there was a huge amount of um, internal dissension over high interest rates. It basically killed the housing industry and the contractors were sending tuba fours into uh, Paul, Paul Volcker. Um, the Fed could have lost his independence, but Reagan didn't like inflation and he just couldn't bring himself to um, criticized the Fed publicly. And as it turned out, the, the, the public was so tired of inflation that um, basically the, the public um, overall supported, supported the Fed and, and, and uh, Volcker was able to uh, uh, bring, as I say, bring us down to 4% uh, inflation uh, without losing Fed independence. But it was pretty dicey at the time. So. After Volcker, Greenspan becomes the chair. What, what is Greenspan's tenure like? Well, Greenspan's an interesting person. First of all, he's the um, kind of definitely the world's best business forecaster. He um, starts uh, Greenspan uh, forecasting company in the late forties. He's actually uh, uh, studies under Arthur Burns at, at Columbia, but he. Um, He's past master at reading reading the economy. He also has this other um, side to him. Uh, he he becomes a disciple of Anne Rand, and Anne Rand wants to go back to the gold standard. Now you can't do that, or he, that wasn't going to happen. But but Greenspan wanted to create the kind of nominal price stability that existed under the gold standard. The, you know, the price level was basically the same after the Napoleonic Wars as it was um, uh, going into World War II. Uh, he wanted to recreate that kind of um, environment of expected price stability because he thought it would um, be uh, create an environment in, that would be very um, uh, conducive to the operation of a free market economy and, um, uh, and investment. So that was basically the discipline he worked, worked under, is trying to work down inflationary expectations. And the, um, the, 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 the climactic battle between uh, the Fed and the bond market vigilantes occurred in 1994 when you uh, so in, in the in the recovery from the 90, 1990 91 recession, um, uh, uh, 
it was called the jobless recovery at the time because um, uh, Greenspan was very slow to work interest rates down because he didn't want bond bond rates to kind of rise again. He wanted he wanted them work, them to work down as a measure of long run expected inflation. But in '94, when the when the economy really took off strongly again, bond rates rose and uh, uh, Greenspan raised rates from three to six uh, percent uh, in the space of uh, uh, about about a year, which was pretty pr pr pretty pretty dramatic. Uh, we got through it without a recession, but that base basically um, uh, established um, um, uh, the expectation of price stability as um, as uh, the, the sort of environment in which we were financial markets accepted. And then moving on from Greenspan. Uh... You know, uh, Bernanke obviously experienced uh, was was the chair during during the recession. Uh, what was Bernanke's uh, great? You know, what were his challenges that he had to face as Fed chair, and how did the role of the Fed uh, shift, including in the eyes of the public, uh, during the recession? <laughs> well, this this is where um, my interpretation is going to be very. Controversial. Remember where we started? I, I came out of the money making workshop at uh, at Chicago, uh, you know, free market monetarist, and uh, Freeman believed that you know credit markets should just be left to operate on their own. They should, you know, the Fed shouldn't be involved in allocating credit, and that was the truth. That was the the Fed position starting with with Martin. Okay, now. Um, Bernanke had studied the Depression, and a feature of the Depression were bank runs. And the the what was just to come back uh, to the Great Contraction again. Um, what stunned uh, the economics profession and policymakers was that the country didn't recover from. An initial recession that we had in the past. The recession went on and on and on. So, you know, what was so, you know, the Keynesian had one answer free markets don't work anymore. We've got large corporations that are um, monopolistic, they keep prices from adjusting. We're not in a competitive economy anymore. That was the Keynesian um, interpretation. Well, uh, Bernanke revisits this um, issue starting with the bank panics and. Uh, now, Freeman and Schwartz say that, well, you had this monetary contraction, and that was what kept the, that's what made a garden variety recession into the Great Depression. Bernanke has a different view. Bernanke's view is that there was a credit channel, that it was the interruption to um, credit intermediation that caused the persistence and the depth of, of the Depression. Okay. Now, you come into 2008. Um, the world has, um, we can talk about whether this was a good bet, but the world has accepted, the, the, the Western countries have accepted the idea that they can, if, if they admit uh, Russia, especially China, India, Brazil, into the, as members of the world economy, and by introducing them into the, making them part of the World Trade Organization, and they'll develop a regular um, uh, democratic uh, free market economy like the West. 
Well, these economies enter, and um, as their economies integrate into the world economy and they expand their exports, um, there's a huge demand for for commodities. So you get you get a huge inflation shock uh, uh, in, in in relative terms. That is, in the summer of 2008, headline inflation goes up to four percent. Underlying inflation is just a little over two percent. Four, the core figures. But the Fed becomes very concerned that high headline inflation, just like now, uh, is going to pass into underlying inflation. It'll become entrenched. And then um, the only way, get out, way to get out of it is a severe recession. Okay. So, but the Fed has never experienced, um, uh, okay, the natural rate of interest. That goes back to our earlier discussion. The natural rate of interest is the market rate that keeps the economy growing potential. Okay? It, keeps, it redistributes aggregate demand over time to keep um, aggregate demand equal to the potential output of the economy. Okay, so um, in this environment, um, the, the Fed views real interest rates, the, the inter nominal interest rate minus the inflation rate is negative. And so the Fed views Monetary policy is expanding. At the same time, you you got this high inflation and a concern for inflationary expectations becoming unhinged. So the Fed doesn't, and the European Central Bank in spades, does not want uh, to run um, an inflationary monetary policy. But by um, fall of 2008, it's obvious that the recession is not confined to the United States. It's going to be a world recession and it's going to be a serious recession. Uh, so, so the Fed and the ECB think they can balance off these two objectives. They're not going to um, lower interest rates uh, significantly. Um, uh, what, and, 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 you know, and Bernanke and, and the ECB, they're thinking, well, what's causing this recession? Well, uh, the answer, Bernanke goes back to his work he did in the Great Depression and says it's got to be a disruption to financial intermediation. It's got to be this, this unwinding of the housing uh, bubble that's um, uh, causing these uh, off-budget uh, entities, the structured investment vehicles to unwind and credit uh, the the. the home mortgage is coming back under the bank balance sheet. So, so Bernanke uh, um, believes that the recession is a, um, is a working through a credit channel. So his emphasis is on getting credit flowing again. Now, that's, that's very different. I argue in, in my book that what Bernanke should have done is to make sure that aggregate now dollar expenditure continued growing. So he should have undertaken open market operations, what we now call quantitative easing, to keep aggregate demand uh, 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 growing. Um, now, in the environment of the time, he, you know, he would, and I was there, he would, he would have said, um, oh no, that'll unhinge, unhinge inflationary expectations, inflation's 4%. What he should have done, is to say, okay, we're going to have an expansionary monetary policy. Credit markets will, will you know, we can deal with those separately. Um, but uh, 
we'll deal with inflationary expectations by um, articulating an inflation target. But he didn't do that. That didn't happen until January of 2012. And so the, the Fed and the ECB were very slow to understand that there was this extraordinary shift where the natural rate of interest was, was, was actually becoming negative. Even though you had zero realized real rates of interest, that wasn't enough. Um, you were going to have to have quantitative easing and forward guidance to get us through this period of, of, of a negative uh, uh, underlying uh, real, real rate of interest. So I think that uh, um, Bernanke and Treasury Secretary Paulson, who was a markets guy, they just misread the situation as being caused by a disruption of financial intermediation. So their, their emphasis was, was on these TARP uh, programs to um, uh, force capital into banks to deal. So it was sort of a cover for, for dealing with the banks like Citibank, who, who really were in, in trouble, to get more capital into the banking system, credit, credit flowing again. But what they should have done was pursue an expansionary or not contractionary monetary policy. So, um, but, you know, I'm a minority view. Uh, I didn't get the Nobel Prize, Ben Bernanke did. So I think um, uh, we're going to have a very interesting battle of the books uh, coming up in my book. Finally, right. It was supposed to have been out in August. Apparently it'll be out in December. Um, academic presses um, don't run at warp speed. Okay. Right. And for, for listeners, Bernanke is putting out, or I don't know if it's out yet, but Bernanke is writing a book about 21st century monetary policy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, 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 it's out, and uh, Blind, Blinder's book is out, and uh, the Wall Street Journal um, uh, columnist, uh, John Hilsenrath, and um, Nick Timoros are, are also writing books about this 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 period. Uh, um, Nick's book is called uh, Trillion Dollar Arbitrage. He's talking about um, the credit uh, programs that uh, Powell initiated and um, uh, Hilsenrath is, is, is uh, talking about Yellen, Janet Yellen. Right. So, so you, you mentioned, uh, you, you talked a little bit about quantitative easing. How did quantitative easing first become a tool that the Fed could rely on? Uh, and, you know, I think that that also talking about quantitative easing probably brings us a little bit into uh, current issues around the Fed. Yeah, exactly. They rely yeah. On it. Well, as we said, you know, Bernanke has his credit channel view. And so in the fall of 2008, he basically on his own initiative um, institutes a policy of buying uh, mortgages, a package they're called mortgage-backed securities. The idea is to provide credit to the housing market. So that's how it starts. But uh, again, I was there at the Richmond Fed. Uh, I was there 42 and a half years. Um, uh, we were very much opposed to credit allocation. So in March of 2009, we reached a compromise where the, the Fed would continue buying mortgage-backed securities, but it would also buy uh, treasury securities and try to uh, tilt in favor of purchasing uh, tre tre treasury securities. So that's, that's really how quantitative easing uh, uh, took off. And my argument in my book is, is that, well, I mean, most market commentators say that the recovery was slow to take off because we didn't have enough 
fiscal policy that the Obama um, uh, fiscal uh, deficit spending uh, wasn't wasn't sufficient. But my argument's a very different one. Um, uh, at that time in uh, 2009, 10, going into 11, um, markets just assumed that if you had a deep recession, you'd have a strong recovery. That's the way it had always been before. Um, so the yield curve, um, even at the trough of the recession, was very steeply sloped upward. Bond rates stayed high, and that's, that made monetary policy um, contractionary. And that's why we had a slow recovery. And it was only as the Fed realized that it needed to expand quantitative easing and be aggressive about forward guidance, which didn't happen until August 2011, that the economy was, um, uh, you know, began a strong recovery. So, you know, moving into, into the present, uh, you know, so a question, you, you set this out at the beginning of the book of this idea of, of whether or not there is a, an optimal monetary standard. So <laughs> I was wondering, uh, you know, you, you can either, yeah, we, we can leave that as a read the book to find out, uh, or if you'd like, you know, to maybe offer a, a view about how people should think about what a monetary standard uh, might look like. And, uh, you know, sort of cutting through the, the fight, the ongoing fight between Keynesianism and monitor, Keynesian approaches and monetar monetaristic approaches. Well, um, let's not cut through, let's build on it. Okay. Um, the Keynesian view, which came out of the uh, 1930s when the unemployment rate uh, just never seemed to, uh, you know, fall to a low level, was just the price, the stabilizing properties of the price system don't work well to maintain output at potential for a lot of reasons. Markets have stopped being competitive. Uh, you've got um, um, institutional setting of prices from large corporations and labor unions and so on. Um, and so if the, if the stabilizing properties of the price system don't work well to maintain full employment, well, that's gotta be the responsibility of the government. Uh, through fiscal and monetary policy. Initially, the concentration was on deficit spending, but uh, then uh, uh, the emphasis changed to um, monetary policy. And if the economy doesn't work well, well, you, and you want to maintain full employment, you need, um, you need to have a separate target for low unemployment. So the Fed needs to operate with two independent objectives, low unemployment, and low inflation. But if you're gonna have two independent objectives, you need some way to trade off. How do you, how do you trade off between the two? Well, that's the so-called Phillips curve, which is this empirical relationship between inflation and unemployment. And in this Keynesian world of aggregate demand management uh, with these two independent objectives, you're, you, you're necessarily, um, uh, following alternating policy of expansion and contraction as you shift your emphasis from one uh, goal to the other. Now, now Freeman's argument um, was that uh, that's destabilizing long and variable lags. When you're concerned about low unemployment and you want expansionary monetary policy, well, that's fine for a while, but, but the effects only work out over time. And so you end up with inflation 
and then you concentrate on inflation, you have a contractionary monetary policy, and that brings us back to where we are now. And um, uh, uh, so eventually, you know, policy becomes too contractionary, and, and you get this you get this cycle. Now, the um, the, the counter to that, the Freeman counter, was that um, uh, there was going to be he he wanted a rule for steady money growth. Okay, now for reasons we can talk about uh, uh, later, the, uh, that 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 no longer that no longer works. But the spirit of the rule is that with steady money growth. Um, you would have a steady uh, rate of inflation because potential growth would be fairly uh, steady, and um, not only not only would you have a stable nominal anchor in, in, in terms of low inflation or kind of near price stability, the market forces would be um, in charge of determining real variables. It wouldn't be the government deficit spending, that gets us back to the original form of lean against the wind and William McChesney Martin. Okay. Now, um, that doesn't, um, so just kind of for 30 seconds, the, the, the monetarist idea is, is that the public demands a certain amount of liquidity in its asset portfolio. And as long as you had a good empirical measure of that in terms of M1 and M2, uh, you, you, could, you could ensure that desired amount of liquidity by steady money growth. But with technological innovation and all this movement in and out of, of money funds, the, the monetary aggregates no longer work well to capture this liquidity because um, when interest market rates would fall, bank rates uh, wouldn't decline, pari uh, passu, Reintermediation out of uh, money market instruments into bank deposits, and when the economy would weaken, the money supply would strengthen. Uh, that was, you know, not not would be a good not be a good time to raise interest rates. So, so the Fed lost interest in in money. Okay, but um, if you think that inflation is a monetary phenomenon, that is, it requires monetary control on the part of the Fed. And you also think that um, markets work well, the stabilizing properties of the market system work well to maintain output at potential as long as the Fed doesn't interfere with the market's determination of this natural rate of interest that keeps outward growing potential, then you, you can put those things together in terms of a rejuvenation of William McChesney Martin's um, uh, lean against the wind policies in that the, the um, responsibility of the Fed is to maintain a stable nominal anchor. And the way it does that is through a credible rule that causes markets and the public to expect that prices are going to be stable. And the, um, uh, when firms go to set prices for multiple periods, they don't have to worry about inflation. So that's the expectational environment. And then you have a rule that causes the funds rate to... Um, move to counter excessive uh, growth or weakness in the economy and keep the real funds rate at the natural rate of interest. And, and, and then uh, with the real funds rate equal to the natural rate of interest, then the, the market forces are determining um, output and unemployment. So uh, output and employment. So 
So the Keynesian side is that if you're going to have full employment and low inflation, you, you, you need to have this ongoing discretionary juggling between the two and uh, alternating expansionary directionary monetary policy. Well, the, the monetarist view is that you, you, want, you want a neutral monetary policy, which concentrates on price stability, lets the price system work to maintain full, full, full employment. So that the Fed's maximum employment objective comes out of the operation of a healthy economy. It's not an independent objective. So do you think it would be right to, to suggest that Jerome Powell now is maybe taking cues from Martin? No, I think he, he started taking cues from um, Bernanke fall 2008, where he, he got the Fed very involved in credit allocation, uh, uh, starting with Bernanke and continuing with um, uh, Powell. Uh, the Fed has reinvented itself as a combination central bank and GSE, like Annie May. Um, and I, I, that's that, that's just a disaster because it creates all kinds of moral hazard issues with the shadow banking system, uh, which which just get worse and worse, worse and worse. Um, and it also gets the Fed involved in the politics of credit allocation, uh, which is very political. You know, obviously the Democrats want us to allocate credit away from fossil fuel industries to green industries and so on, which is very controversial. And, and um, it, it, you know, it, the Fed just ought to let, you know, have a, have a rule where uh, it doesn't, it, it's not always lender of first resort to any institution that gets into trouble. So market discipline, uh, disciplines uh, risk taking, and then let, let credit markets work and concentrate its focus on monetary policy, keeping aggregate nominal demand growing at a rate in line with potential output so that we have price stability. And the, um, the, the role of the central bank is to provide a stable monetary framework that allows markets to work. So uh, sort of following up uh, on that point about, you know, people saying, oh, the Fed should you know, promote some policies to, you know, to allocate credit in some way. Uh, you know, that seems like that, that would be the, the typical domain, if anything, of, of Congress. Do you think that, uh, you know, lawmakers have over over time tried to shirk some of their responsibility over to the Fed uh, in order to avoid making hard choices? Well, I think um, a lot of this came from um, Powell and... Uh, is uh, Keynesian advisors. Uh, they, view, they view monetary policy as working through financial intermediation. And so when in April of 2020, 2020 when the unemployment rate jumped up to 14.7%, they said, oh my God, you know, um, we, we have all this social responsibility. We need an unemployment rate low enough to um, uh, maintain full employment. Uh, there's this huge amount of slack in the economy. So they were, you know, very, very Keynesian. Um, so first of all, they said, okay, we need to bring the unemployment rate down to its pre-pandemic pre level, 3.5%. And given this flat Phillips curve, we can go all the way down to 3.5% without an increase in inflation. So we can really step on the accelerator. 
we really need expansionary uh, policy. And we don't have to do what Greenspan uh, and um, uh, did and uh, uh, Bernanke did uh, and uh, where, where we have this long recovery to get unemployment back down to its full employment level. We can really um, uh, speed that process up with expansionary policy and hey, the unemployment rate is so high that there's all this slack in the economy. Uh, we don't have to worry about inflation. And in the Keynesian environment, um, uh, of viewing monetary policy as working through financial intermediation, the Fed's we're gonna we're gonna buy um, mortgage-backed securities, we're gonna buy treasury securities. That's gonna improve market functioning. Well, what it did was to create money uh, with this commitment not to raising interest rates, and with with a monetization of a huge amount of government debt. We were back in the World War One and World War Two. We're doing we were doing what Venezuela and um, uh, Zimbabwe do uh, when, when they monetize uh, uh, government debt, and yeah, now we've got a uh, high and rising uh, underlying rate of rate rate of inflation. It's just that it acts with you know comes about like Milton Friedman said with a long leg, almost almost two years. So um, I think the problem with Congress is that they don't understand these issues, you know. Um, and they, they sort of leave the Fed alone to do what it wants to do until we're in a crisis, and then um, you know no, no, nobody was nobody knows what to do. And the Fed's got this institutional amnesia, amnesia problem, like we talked about at the very beginning, where it's got this narrative where, where it never makes mistakes. Well, if you never make a mistake, then you can't. There's nothing to learn. Uh, uh, you know, when, when when current Fed spokesmen talk about the '70s and high inflation, they say, "Oh, we learned the length." We learn the lessons of the 70s. They never say we learn from our mistakes in the 1970s. That's a very different uh, sort of commentary. So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, sure, it'd be nice if uh, Congress uh, had the kind of intellectual sophistication to uh, oversee the Fed, but it doesn't. And so I, I think a lot of the uh, blame for the kind of situation we're in and now uh, with underlying inflation that's significantly above the two percent target, lies with the um, uh, with with the Federal Reserve System. My final question for you is: you know, you went through this experience of going through over a hundred years uh, of, of Fed history. Uh, you know, how does how did doing this project help you think about the work that you did? Uh, you know, did you have any change of opinion about something that you may have had about how the, the Fed was supposed to operate prior to working on this project? Well, um, sort of start from the beginning and come to the end. You know, I started in the money and banking workshop at the University of Chicago with Milton Friedman, and he proposed a rule, but the, the, and the, the, the constant money growth rule no longer works, but, but the fundamentals of that rule that inflation is a monetary phenomenon. It requires procedures that uh, limit uh, money growth. And that if the Fed provides a stable nominal uh, framework, uh, that's conducive to the operation of a free market economy. So the issue is to um, revise um, the uh, monitor's Keynesian debate and, and, and to revise the, the monitor's rule um, uh, 
such that the Fed is responsible for creating a stable nominal anchor in, in which um, uh, firms don't worry about inflation. They just set prices based on supply and demand and relative, relative prices. But at the same time, the Fed follows these procedures that allow the market economy to work. And in doing that, they set a level of interest rates that disciplines uh, uh, the demand for money and keeps money growing at potential and, and preserves price stability. Is there anything else, uh, you know, that you are considering working on once this comes out? Uh, I, I, I know, uh, obviously, after doing the Fed history, there's so much going on related to Fed policy. It seems like it's on the front page of the news every few weeks or so. Um, do you foresee yourself working on anything else related to monetary policy? Oh, yeah. Policy? Yeah, I'm I'm like Ahab chasing the <laughs> white whale I've, for a long time. I just haven't been able to get it out because of these other books and things. Uh, I, I'm working on um, a book called Milton Friedman, Markets Monetarism and Wixellian Monetarism. Wixellian refers to uh, um, central bank procedures that operate with um, uh, interest rate uh, procedures. And this is going to be sort of parallel to, to the book we're talking about. It's going to be a review of the intellectual uh, of the intellectual and political debates over the monetary standard over the lifetime of the Fed. And I'm going to um, have a lot of Freeman in there. Um, Freeman was an incredible letter writer. I have, um, I don't know, maybe a thousand letters that he he wrote, he would just dictate them off the top of his head the way Mozart would write a symphony and then have them um, um, you know, type, typed up from, uh, you know, from, from the tape uh, recording. And no one's ever used these letters. Uh, and um, I would every summer go visit Friedman and, uh, and copy letters. And uh, I have a, no one's been willing to use them because they're afraid of of copyright uh, issues, but I have a letter from Freeman saying I have complete freedom to use these. And so I'm writing this book and I, I feel like I have this whole treasure trove of material to draw on. And um, I'm pretty excited. So so is it it's sort of like an intellectual biography of, of Friedman? Yeah, but um, in, in a way that um, highlights the kinds of um, debates over the monetary standard that we've been, we've been having now. Because we had a really vigorous debate in the 1970s, but that's that's not taking place anymore, um, and that's that, that's a terrible misfortune. We we need to rejuvenate it. Debate is is always is always healthy and good, and you know new <laughs> new new learnings are revealed. Well, Robert, thank you so much for for being a guest on the New Books Network. Uh, the book is The Federal Reserve: A New History from New Chicago Press. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you.